die is gain. Verse 21, I think, stands as the spiritual centre of this whole section uh, of the book of uh, Philippians. It's a, it's a verbless aphorism in the original. That is, put it simply, it's a blunt, slightly pithy statement of truth. And everything about that statement makes it easy to remember and yet very hard to forget. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's there, I guess, to make us wake up and for our hairs to stand on end. It certainly would have done for the original readers. Let me give you a slight parallel if I can. Count Zinzendorf, the German 18th century Protestant nobleman who founded much uh, mission work on the mainland Europe, once said something very similar. He says this, I have one enthusiasm. It is he and only he. My friends, it is this enthusiasm it's this kind of singular visioned life that is to live being only devoted to Christ only defined by Christ guided by Christ upheld by Christ motivated by Christ that Paul in a very passionate way calls us to if we are able to say that then the resultant phrase in that verse the second part of it if you like can also be yours. That is, to die will be gain. But I guess you're asking, how can death be gain? Surely death is loss, isn't it? Because uh, when you die, it separates us from all the things that we currently love and currently enjoy. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Well, hopefully we're going to unpack that as we go on. And I'm going to take you through just four points. And I think the whole section leads to that uh, little verse. But let me take you through four points to kind of make uh, the main point clear. So the four points are listed on your sheets. Uh, The first being we're going to look at the example of Paul. I'm going to show you how Paul essentially lives that out, that verse. Secondly, we'll see Paul's example. And in his example, through that example, a priority begins to emerge uh, in him. And I think we ought to learn from that. So that's going to be our second point in verses 15 to 18. Then uh, thirdly, we're going to look at the confidence of Paul. I think that's where verse 21 sits. And I guess in that, we see his confident life summarised in that one line. Then lastly, we'll see the joy of Paul. Uh, The point there being is, this is not grit and determination from Paul here. This isn't a morbid love of death or anything like that. There's no weeping with uncertainty here. There is sure and certain, confident hope that leads to rejoicing. Paul doesn't revel in the pain of death, but he joyfully longs for what he confidently knows. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let me give you a bit of background, though, if I can, to begin with. Paul is, uh, I think, probably a man unrivaled in history by the fact that he has suffered probably more than any other person. And it's not that he ever went looking for it or enjoyed it, but in his single-mindedness of making Christ known, it brought him into many situations to where suffering was normal 
So he physically suffered terribly. If you want to, read through the book of Acts, all 28 chapters, and you get story after story after story where Paul suffers at the hands of those who would want to just get rid of him or shut him up. He has multiple floggings with whips. He is stoned on one occasion in Acts chapter 14. Two shipwrecks, and he gets the end of his letter to the Galatians, and it's clear he's not actually looking for all this suffering. But his bodies hold the story. Let me read Galatians 6 verse 17 to you. From now on, let no one cause me trouble or suffering, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And so now he's writing to the church in Philippi, which is known as Little Rome. And Philippi was known as that because it was a a Roman colony situated in Macedonia, the the kind of the head of the Aegean Sea. And it had become, among many other things, the choice place of retirement for a group of people called the Praetorian Guard, the Roman Guard. If you like, it's the Eastbourne of the Roman Empire. How iconic then that as we get to uh, this this letter in uh, Philippians, how ironic that Paul, imprisoned in Rome, is writing to little Rome, to a church in little Rome, chained to some of the guard who probably would retire to the same place. But as he sat there in chains in Rome, he knew that some of the church, particularly in Jerusalem, were criticising him. Paul had been, uh, in their minds, a bit, perhaps not as politically savvy as they might have liked. Maybe a bit headstrong, a bit outspoken. And so our passage today begins, if you like, with a bit of a defence of his ministry. But I think one that ought to be an example to us. Let's look at that if we can. And we begin here by looking at the example of Paul, verse 12 to 14. Look at verse 12, though. Now I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul is writing here to his brothers. Uh, It's a term used to essentially brothers and sisters, Christians. He's writing to the Christians in Philippi. And he's acutely aware that his imprisonment uh, looks like a hindrance, doesn't it? To making the gospel known. Being changed to a member of the Praetorian Guard in Rome is hardly one of those kind of Five key points of church strategy and growth, is it, that the Philippian church would have had? Advancement, whether in business or sport or whatever realm or sphere of life that you can think of, is hardly kind of benefited from having chains around you, is it? You can't advance in chains, can you? So there is Paul. He sat imprisoned in Rome to probably a praetorian guard beside him. That's one of the palace guard we read in verse 13. And a new one would come each morning to be chained to Paul. But how can the gospel advance in such a situation? Paul mentions actually the gospel. Let's think of that for a moment. He mentions the gospel nine times in this letter. It's more concentrated in this letter than anywhere else in the New Testament. The gospel or the good news that Paul is speaking of is the gospel or the good news about or concerning Jesus Christ. And that content of the gospel, which he would have been speaking of, uh, is very simple. That Christ died for our sins as prophesied and he rose again as prophesied 
in the scriptures. But still, how can that gospel advance whilst Paul remains chained to a Praetorian guard? And we must remember what Paul is saying. He's he's saying advance the gospel. Notice that phrase in verse 14. He's talking about the preaching of the gospel being advanced. He isn't necessarily talking about the results of the gospel being preached. But preaching the gospel, telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ through his prophesied death and resurrection was offering now forgiveness for our sin and an eternal relationship with God. That gospel message was so important to him that even whilst in chains, in a Roman prison, this situation served to advance the gospel. How? Well, can you imagine it? Okay, you've got this praetorian guard man comes along. It's his duty that day to be chained to Paul. So here he comes. These praetorian guard, they were 9,000 of the most elite troops within uh, the Roman army. They got double pay and they got double pension. Hence why they could live in Eastbourne. They were essentially the SAS of Rome. Perhaps the, the lowest of their duties, though, was to be chained to someone in prison. So here they are in Rome, just a few of them would be chained to Paul, one every morning. But look at the effect. Verse 14. It has been clear that throughout the whole palace, God, and to everyone else, that I am in chains for Christ. Can you imagine? being chained to Paul for a whole day. I guess in his mind, he's just rubbing his hands. If he could actually bring them together, I'm not sure he could because of the chains, but he'd be rubbing his hands and say, I've got another one for a whole day and they can't get away. Each guard who would be chained would have heard the gospel again and again. The story was there that a Messiah had come who'd been prophesied in the scriptures, who died and resurrected according to the scriptures, who now was offering an atonement for sins, forgiveness before God, before God. And the guards would have heard this hour after hour after hour. And they could have gone from their guard duty and gone and met with eyewitnesses who could testify to the historicity of what Paul was saying. Paul's example was to use every moment to make the gospel known. So that the gospel was preached to the Praetorian God. And we know that some came to, came to faith. So why don't you turn over the page to chapter 4, verse 22. In Paul's final greetings in this letter, he closes, to all the saints send you greetings, that's the Christians in Rome send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household, the palace guard. The Christians of the palace guard. But the effect of Paul's preaching at the gospel not only ripples through the guard, but also through the Christian community. You see that again in verse 14. We see that there are brothers, that is again Christians, they were given confidence to also proclaim. And we know how this works, don't we? If we're Christians here today. It's so encouraging, isn't it, when you hear of Christians uh, preaching the gospel or standing firm in the gospel promises, despite their circumstances and despite their suffering and despite their difficulties. Their example does somewhat relativise our struggles, doesn't it, in the office, amongst friends and neighbours. For example, it has been very encouraging to hear of uh, children in Iraq, for example, standing firm, declaring their allegiance to the gospel and defiance when they're offered the choice, beheading or to convert to Islam. And they, like Paul, encourage us through their example. 
Persecution of the church always works this way. For example, my, um, my father will speak uh, very, very um, passionately, shall we say, as he and his generation were encouraged and utterly captivated by five college graduates uh, who went from Wheaton College to take the gospel to the Harani people of Ecuador. And one of them, best known, I guess, was the man named Jim Elliot, who famously said, like Paul in verse 21, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And as my father and I, I guess many men of his generation uh, heard of Jim Elliot and his friends, they were utterly fired up that they would preach the gospel courageously amongst their friends as they saw the self-sacrifice of these men. Their example, like Paul's in verse 14, encourage others in the church to speak the word of God more courageously, more fearlessly. Let me ask a question, if I may. I wonder, as they hear the children upstairs, I wonder what example the children upstairs see in us. I wonder how much they would be encouraged to speak the word of God to their friends at school as they see your example and my example. The example of Paul is clear. Even in change, the gospel advanced and even encouraged the whole church to speak the word of God. But despite the fact that many were coming to faith in Rome as the church had the courage to preach the gospel, it wasn't all plain sailing. Things were quite tough, actually, and we'll see that in this next section. Verse 15 to 18, there are now, Paul makes it clear, there are two, pre- two groups of preachers who had two completely different motives when preaching the gospel. This is a very short, and it's like a current news episode from Paul, if you like. And we see here, beginning to emerge, the priority of Paul. Let's look now, verse 15 to 18. Do cast your eyes down. Verse 15 shows us that although these preachers in Rome were preaching the same gospel, Paul doesn't criticise them for not preaching the gospel. They preached the gospel, but some had dubious motives. Now this, when you read it at first, you kind of think, that, that seems really odd. But envy and rivalry is a struggle even within the church. In fact, it was such a struggle that uh, one commentator I was reading pointed out that uh, a particular Latin phrase was adopted to basically describe this envy and rivalry throughout history. The Latin phrase was the odium theologicum. And again, you may be thinking, ah, this doesn't really occur. Let me contemporise it for you if I possibly can. A large, very large central London church. They they find, um, you know, in the next week that... There is a number of their congregation who live in SW18. And they decide to plant a church. And they're welcomed by all the churches in Ellsfield. They say, come and use our buildings anytime you want. They grow exponentially over the first few years. And they're the talk of Ellsfield. Everyone wants to be with them and part of them. Do I need to go on? Are you envious? The envious are those annoyed at the success of friends. Paul had arrived in Rome and essentially he was the superstar apostle uh, of the time. And uh, everyone naturally gravitated towards him. And so some of the church leaders had become envious. And they began to preach motivated by this envy. 
Now, Paul does make it clear that most preach out of goodwill. We see that there. So with good motives. And they supported Paul. They saw that he languished in jail, in prison, and he was in chains. And they understood that he was there for defending the gospel. But there were those who preached motivated by selfish ambition. And so verse 17 could really read something like this. Uh, they, they preached, if you like, to rub the salt in the wounds of Paul in chains or the, to afflict him more. But look at Paul's response. He doesn't sit there in prison, doesn't he, going sort of, oh, please give me lots of pity. Woe is me. Or he wasn't sitting there, oh, why me? Verse 18, what does it matter, he says. The important thing to Paul is that in every way, what? Christ is preached. Christ is preached. And here we begin to see the emergence of his priority, that Christ is preached. <laughs> and so let me put it back into that illustration I said earlier. So we don't mind if a large central London church plant, yeah, the plant a new church here, if the gospel is preached. We just don't mind, do we? We don't mind if other churches that preach the gospel grow quicker than Christ church over. We don't mind that, do we? We don't mind if churches have buildings of their own that they can do all the things they want to so that Christ is preached. We don't mind that, do we? We don't mind. It's actually more than that though, isn't it? Have a look at verse 18. Look at what Paul did. He rejoiced. He rejoiced. The priority of Paul is saying, is, is saying as long as Christ is preached, that, that the saving, forgiving gospel of Christ is preached, that's all that matters. Again, I, I wonder if the children upstairs see and hear that in us. I wonder if George and Livy and Amelie and Lola and Joel and Zach and Elliot and all the others... I wonder if they see that in us. Imagine like 20 years time, okay, and there's a bit of reunion of all the kids and they go to the pig and whistle, which is probably called something else by then. Yeah, George has got a nice pint of beer. Nathan's already having a bit of a nightmare there. You know, and, and there's you know, all the other ones and they've got their little glasses and everything there. I wonder what they'll be saying about you lot in 20 years time. I wonder whether they'll be looking back and they say, you know that guy, he's a banker, and the amount of hours he works was absolutely bonkers. And yet I know, I remember seeing him just being so passionate about making Christ known. Oh, there was that doctor, and yeah, they had all the hours to work, and they were doing these night shifts, but whenever they could, they could get to home group because they wanted to hear the God's word. I saw it. They came to my house every week. Why? So they could. Preach Christ. Will they be inspired to serve and prioritise Christ and the gospel by our example and by our priorities? I wonder. So we've seen the example of Paul. We've seen the priority of Paul. Now let's thirdly look at the confidence of Paul. And here we come to that paragraph that has in its centre that wonderful verse, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. <coughs> But I don't know if you've noticed what this is all about. I've given it away in the title. It's all about confidence. But it's not that grit your teeth confidence that I said. It's a joyful confidence. It isn't arrogance. There's not a hint of self-confidence anywhere in this section. 
The deliverance, for example, that Paul speaks of in verse 19, have a look at that, is literally a salvation. An ultimate deliverance he's speaking of there. But his confidence in that salvation doesn't come from within himself. No, not at all. Rather, he looks to Christ and the work of Christ. And also, specifically there, he mentions his confidence comes from the fact that his friends in the church will be praying for him. They pray for a greater awareness or help of the Spirit of God. That help word literally could be translated as supply. And that's not to say that any of us, if we're Christians today, are in any way lacking in the Spirit of God. As we turn to Christ and put our trust in Him, we receive a full measure of the Spirit of God. But there are times, particularly as you go through the book of Acts, where people proclaiming the gospel in times of need, where the Spirit is given by God, and that person experiences a greater awareness, a greater help, if you like, of the Spirit. And with that in mind, I guess we ought to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world. That they might know what the Philippian church were praying for Paul at this time. A greater awareness of the Spirit so that they would stand. And like in Paul in verse 20, they would be in no way ashamed of Christ. So Paul is confident, not in himself, but in his ultimate deliverance, being confident that Christ will be honoured, he says in verse 20, whether he lives or dies, and he just doesn't know at this time. But this confidence, is it a vain hope? In verse 20, we actually see a a strange little word. He eagerly expects and hopes that he will honour Christ. And the problem we have with phrases like that is when we look at the word hope there, We kind of think about it in a way that we would naturally use it in the world around us. So as you wake up tomorrow morning, you open the curtain, you go, I hope it's not going to rain. But by contrast, biblical hope is not based on that kind of possibility. It's based on a certainty. A certainty of the character and the work of God, which makes hope here an an eager expectation, utterly sure utterly certain the eagerly expect uh, kind of phrase there it's only found once else in the whole of the bible in romans 8 verse 17 and it speaks of an intense expectation and a confidence will do that god will do exactly what he has promised let me summarize paul's confidence is worked out and that he will not be ashamed whatever happens to paul he has ultimate confidence that God will be honoured in and through him. He doesn't know what is before him, but as the most persecuted man that has probably ever lived, even he could say with ultimate confidence that Christ will be glorified. And for that reason, he can say, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It is very difficult for us to see how striking these particular phrases would have been. I'm not going to get too technical here, but we, we, even we can see there's kind of a parallelism between the two halves of that little phrase. We see that in the English. Now, even as it sounded on the ear of the original listeners, it would have been really, really striking. I have no idea what this means, but apparently it's tonal assonance. And anyone who studied English, they would go, yeah. For the rest of us, no clue. But there we go. But the main thing, the main reason I love this little phrase is this. It's so compact. It's a verbless Greek sentence, so it literally reads like this. For to me, to live Christ. 
to die gain. But how can Paul say that? Let's look at the first half first. For to me to live Christ. Now, of course, at the, at the biggest level, Paul is in Christ through his union with Christ, through his faith union with Christ. He's trusted the gospel and therefore he has known the forgiveness that comes from that and therefore he is in Christ, as he says, spiritually. Other, way, other places he says he's bound to Christ, or in 2 Corinthians 5, I think he helpfully describes it as being a new creation in Christ. But along with being in Christ, Paul has also taken up what it is to be a follower of Christ, or to take up his cross, as it says in Mark's Gospel. He puts it in, uh, in this way in uh, Galatians 2, for example, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He is in Christ, and Christ is in him by faith. He lives for Christ. He is guided by Christ, so he can say, for to me, to live Christ. Christ is everything to him. Now, I wonder... If I were to give you a card that said something like, for to me to live is blank, what would you write on that? I've got a card. What if I were to give you this card and it says, for to me to live, what would you write in that blank? Maybe, interestingly, what would the children upstairs write of you if they knew you in the blank? What would your friends and your neighbours and your colleagues write in the blank? In Paul's day, and I guess in ours, it may just expose the shallow tragedy of much of our culture. It's interesting, uh, in one commentator I was reading, it said, in the ruins of the great ancient city of Carthage, there's an inscription carved by a Roman soldier in Latin, and it says this, to laugh, to hunt, to bathe, to game. This is life. And he might write that on a card if I gave it to him. For to me, to live is to hunt. All the South Africans are going, yes. For me to, and so on. But what would you put in that card? For me to live is to eat and drink well. For me to live is to travel. For me to live is to go up the career ladder. For me to live is to ski. For me to live is to extend my house. For me to live is to shop. For me to live is to drive a Porsche 911, navy blue cream leather seats. (laughs) Have you worked it out yet? I wonder if you see, you know, if that is your life, think about the second part of the sentence. Then what is death? It's the loss of everything, isn't it? Apparently, uh, Queen Elizabeth I, a woman who essentially had everything that she ever wanted materially, Do you know what her dying words were? She said, oh my God, it's over. I've come to the end of it. The end. The end. 
And you contrast that with Paul who says, uh, you know, for me to live Christ, it's everything to die gain. Look at verse 22 and 23. And Paul there is now uh, torn between the two. Is he going to live? Is he going to die? He kind of talks to himself, thinking through the options. Verse 23, the sorts of death are better by far, he says. Of course, now, as Christians, we know of what we know of Christ now is wonderful. Brings great purpose and assurance and love and security. But death brings us into an eternal, close, unhindered, joyful relationship with Christ. Paul desires to depart, he says in verse 23. He longs for the far better because he was a citizen of heaven already, as we'll see later on in the book. Friends, we must understand that death for the Christian is always far better. And that is why we can have this utter confidence. It's always far better. Whatever the age... In verse 24, he can't wait to get to heaven. But amazingly, his longing is secondary to what is good for others, if you like. So he not only puts Christ first, for me to live is Christ. He puts those around him first, before himself. That he might serve them and proclaim the gospel to them. Now we live in a culture that's utterly obsessed with ourselves. We put ourselves as number one. We make self-fulfillment an entitlement, don't we? But the Christian way is just completely the opposite. It puts others first. And that is only possible knowing the confidence of the gospel. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that sounds very encouraging, I guess, at this point. But if you're anything like me, cynical, it, it may still sound more attractive to say this. For to me to live is to drive a Porsche 911, navy blue, cream leather seats. So here we turn very quickly and lastly to the joy of Paul. It's in those last two verses, but it's really littered throughout the whole passage and the whole book. You'll see it in verse 18, Paul rejoices that the gospel is preached. Verse 19, Paul rejoices in the prayers of the Philippian church. And then you get to the last couple of verses, verse 25 and 26, and you see that joy abounding. As he continues with the church and their faith in Christ. Joy is not an added extra here. It's not the kind of thing you add on, do you want fries with that? No. Joy is the outworking of the gospel in a life transformed by Christ. Paul is a joyful example. Though he's in chains, he rejoices in the priorities he makes in his life. And he has that joyful confidence in the gospel. Does that mean he laughed when he was whipped? Does that mean that he had some crazy grin on his face when he was stoned in Acts 14? No, of course not. Biblical joy is not an inane grin. Biblical joy means that the gospel truth explodes in our hearts and our minds and transforms every facet of our lives. It gives purpose and meaning and stability and hope. Biblical joy is not the removal of tears, but it lives for the promise of no tears. And biblical joy can say with unbridled confidence that to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
You see, if the first part of that sentence is true, that is, for you to live is Christ, defined by Christ, everything is for Christ, then please, please be assured of the result. That when you die, it's gain. Don't be a Queen Elizabeth, the first. Oh my God, it's over. I've come to the end of it. The end, the end. Look to the example and the priority and the Christ-honouring confidence of Paul. I've got two minutes. I make kind of no kind of embarrassment about this. I am totally nicking this illustration. I was on a holiday and I was listening to this, I think it was on a run, and I thought it was worth sharing with you because I found it particularly helpful for me. I was listening to a, a preacher named Kent Hughes. Uh, he was preaching on, I think, this passage. And he mentioned an elder of his church, a man named Andrew Chung, who was a surgeon as well. He had heart troubles later on in life. He had an operation uh, very near the end of his life and it was stopped early because he was bleeding uh, too much. And his family were called. They thought he had a few hours left. They gathered around the bed weeping. Was, he was about to depart. He came round from the anaesthetic and unable to talk, he motioned to a pad of paper beside the bed. He'd actually been unable to speak for weeks because the pain was so bad and he could hardly hold the pen. But in the last moments of his life, he took that pad of paper and a pen and in terrible pain, wrote in a single column 12 words, barely legible, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he then spent another minute, a full minute, writing one single word. Hallelujah. Which means praise the Lord. He then summoned his last breath and energy and whispered to his family, nothing has changed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to come to the end of life and say, oh my God, it's over, is awful. It is a tragedy that has eternal consequences. And yet to come to the end of life and to be able to say, right, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, hallelujah, is wonderful. Because though we take our last breath on this earth, we stand before you face to face. That's not only... Uh, as a spiritual citizen of heaven, but a true citizen of eternity. And so we thank you for the confidence that we can have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And though we may get to the end of our lives and we might long to say these words, Heavenly Father, help us cling to these, this truth and to know that as we take our last breath, nothing will change. 
That is, that we will still know you, we will still love you, we will be with you fully, completely, joyfully for eternity. Heavenly Father, as we look back over history, we thank you for the example of those who we've mentioned, for Paul, for missionaries that have gone before us, for a gentleman like I've just mentioned. But may we be the examples to those above us in this room right now. May they look to us and see those who cling to the gospel, who proclaim the gospel, and live confidently assured by the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Andy. Lots for us to chew on over the coming week.